Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Lynn Katzman, founder and CEO of Juniper Communities, a Bloomfield, New Jersey-based senior living provider with 21 communities in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Colorado. Katzman sums up Juniper's COVID-19 strategy in one word, proactive. The provider was an early proponent of mass testing in senior living and is now testing all of its staff on a weekly basis. The company is supporting that practice through other infection prevention measures, such as ample use of personal protective equipment or PPE and grouping residents into smaller cohorts. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Last year, we received more than 100 entries for consideration, and we're looking to celebrate even more unique projects this year, including both new development and rehabs that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative design. If you think you have a project that fits that description and you're looking to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. Submissions are currently open. The early bird deadline is September 30, and the final entry deadline is October 31. And now, here's my interview with Lynn Katzman, founder and CEO of Juniper Communities. Lynn Katzman, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. I wanted to start with some information on Juniper's infection control strategy. I know that we've tracked it now for a few months and we've written a few stories, but for our listeners at home who might not be completely aware of what you all are doing, can you briefly summarize your infection control strategy? And then I also, I heard you on the LTC call the other day. I understand that Juniper has zero cases of COVID-19 across residents and staff, which is great. So tell us how you got there. Sure. Happy to. First of all, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be a part of this podcast series and uh, hope that I have something interesting for your listeners to hear. So infection control, I prefer to call it infection prevention strategy. The 30,000 foot view of Juniper's strategy is can be summarized in a single word, proactive. Our goal is to prevent the spread of disease by being proactive about its transmission. So that has been our strategy throughout, but as you well know, our understanding of coronavirus, the virus that causes COVID-19, is a very funny virus and one we've learned a lot about over time. And I'll just make a couple of comments to this end because I think it's relevant to how we shaped our strategy and where it's come to over the last couple of months. As you know, COVID-19 is the second SARS-type virus, and uh, the first was in 2003. And during that particular epidemic, the virus was spread very differently. It was spread mostly by people with symptoms, in fact, predominantly by people with symptoms. I haven't heard of other research which suggests otherwise. Sorry, I want to jump in here and just remind our listeners, we're talking about the first disease known as SARS, right? That is correct. Okay. That is correct. It was 2003. Great. So we've had 17 years since the first SARS outbreak, which was largely relegated to Asia and not to our part of the world. 
Nonetheless, it was spread by people who were symptomatic. So when this SARS epidemic, COVID-19, broke out, and it broke out in December, as far as we know, in China, and it was recognized in the U.S. in early, the first week, um, actually on December 31st of 2019, and declared a pandemic shortly thereafter by the WHO. But when it broke out, people thought, okay, it's another SARS virus. Let's deal with it the same way. And so all of the guidance from the CDC initially suggested that people who spread the disease spread it while they were symptomatic. So while they had a fever, they were uh, (laughs) coughing, sniffling, had difficulty breathing, et cetera, et cetera. So Juniper followed all of that guidance and started following the guidance from the CDC, which suggested screening and temps early on in March. We decided shortly thereafter that we would begin testing. Why? Because the COVID-19 did not start here. It started again in Asia. And uh, we looked to other examples of countries who were dealing with it before us and realized that most of the successful countries appeared to be testing regularly and then doing contact tracing and isolating people with the disease. So Juniper went about getting a commercial lab to agree to test all of our residents and staff. And we did baseline testing at our communities and hotspots on April 1st, which you may recall is a little bit earlier than most people. And what we found was very disheartening. We didn't have anyone at the time who was showing symptoms in our communities, not measurably different symptoms that we thought equated to COVID-19. And yet, at the time, roughly 50% of those two communities that we first tested, tested positive. Now, the vast majority of those people were asymptomatic. 94% of our staff were asymptomatic, totally. And so, no sniffles, no nothing. And about 72% of our residents. And the majority of them remained asymptomatic during their course of the disease. So what did this tell us? Why am I going through all of this to get to the punchline? It's simple. We learned that this disease was not spread only by people who were symptomatic, but by people who were pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic. And that's a huge difference between what we thought would be the case with this virus. And it has changed markedly, not only Juniper's strategy, but since then, the strategy of the CDC and the country in dealing with COVID-19. So at the heart of Juniper's strategy in dealing with COVID-19 has been proactive testing to provide us the data to develop a battle plan, good use of PPE and its other prevention, infection prevention techniques, PPE, hand washing, disinfecting, cleaning, social distancing, cessation of visitors, all of those things are the kinds of things that we do proactively to keep the disease at bay. But most important to our strategy has been testing. You should know that we have been testing since April 1st. We had hoped it would be a one-shot deal, but that too proved uh, an erroneous thought. And we are now testing weekly. We're testing all of our staff weekly because they are the ones coming from the outside and with potential of exposure 
who in turn can potentially expose it to our residents. We're finding that a combination of testing and good use of PPE, particularly masking and cohorting, creating small neighborhoods of residents that eat together, visit together, do things together, but don't necessarily mix with the entire community is the best strategy for minimizing the disease. And yes, today we are COVID-free at all of our communities. That's a lot of great information, and I think our, our listeners will find all of it pretty valuable. I know that another part of Juniper's strategy has been to bubble up its communities, as you've called it. And I know that we've written about this, but I want to also go over this for our listeners who may not have seen that story. So tell us about what Camp Wellspring is and how you bubble up a community and what you actually do. What are the keys to success there? Well, again, it's testing. So what we did, when we tested all of our communities early on, the vast majority of them had no COVID. There were no positive residents or staff among them. And so we decided that the simplest way to keep it that way was to create a bubble around the community to effectively shelter in place not only the residents, but our team members. So you've heard of the people that live in a bubble who are have immune deficiencies or are concerned about all kinds of things in the atmosphere, what we did is we created a figurative bubble around our community. So Camp Wellspring is one of those uh, examples. And so Wellspring is the name we give to all of our memory care communities. They tend to be smaller. And frankly, we believed and recognized as others did that memory care residents were the hardest to keep safe because they tend to wander and uh, don't always listen to isolation policies in the same way that others may. And so we decided that this shelter-in-place strategy was the best thing we could do. In our first community that we were able to, quote-unquote, bubble up, we actually went out and rented a bunch of RVs. And the RVs were for small staff teams. So I mentioned cohorting before, and so what you do if you want to keep people safe is just you divide your building into small neighborhoods, which most of our buildings are in small neighborhoods already, and you assign staff that only can be in those areas, not just only serve residents in those areas, but don't go to other parts of the building. And so uh, those residents and those staff members had small, if you think about a camp, it's like having your own little tent community, and uh, they were all in their little area, and when the staff were off, they went out to their RV. And so it was a lot of fun for people. Most people thought of it as a vacation, and I'm talking not only about our staff members who got a big kick out of what we were doing, but also our residents. So we got everybody matching T-shirts. We did all kinds of fun activities within these small neighborhood, and uh, people were thrilled. So at that time, as you know, families and other loved ones were not permitted to come into the community at all, but we were able to send them lots of pictures, just like you do when you were able to send your children to camp. You know, the camp uh, would send you pictures of your loved one, occasional notes, sometimes you might FaceTime. We did all the same things. And so it became, we dubbed it Camp Wellspring, and it was great success. 
I mentioned a, a moment ago on the this podcast that you were a special guest on the, the most recent LTC Properties earnings call. I seem to remember during this earnings call, you had mentioned that three babies were actually born among staffers <laughs> during yes. this. Were they? Yes, t- yes. T- tell, tell me about that. Well, they didn't. They weren't born in the community. But oh, several okay. of the people, some of the women who sheltered in place were pretty far along in their pregnancy. And two of the three had their babies the week after they came out of the shelter in place out of Camp Wellspring, which was really great fun and, you know, totally unexpected. And another had their baby slightly later, but also three weeks, three weeks early. So we have three little babies who are wow. part of our, our proactive COVID experience. Yes. So it's kind yeah. of fun. That is. I also wanted to talk, uh, drill a little bit deeper into the testing. I know that Juniper recently teamed up with a company called, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, Decina for for COVID-19 testing. So tell me about that partnership and why did you choose that company to partner with for your COVID-19 testing? Okay. Well, Decina is actually the second partnership that we had in place. We have also have a partnership in place with Magnolia Labs, which is out of... uh, Texas out of the Dallas area. And Magnolia helped us for a very long time. Magnolia uses a traditional PCR test. And Zacina is part of a group of companies that is working on a a different type of test that will ultimately be an at-home rapid test. So let me tell you a little bit about that. As you know, and as I've said on this podcast, testing is a huge part of our strategy. Why? Our belief is that until there's a vaccine that's widely used that creates essentially herd immunity, testing is our best strategy for not only keeping disease out of our communities, but are allowing those within the community to return to some sense of normalcy, to be able to have activities again and meals and to do things in the way to socialize in the way that we've always been known for. Some time ago, when we realized that rapid testing was the answer, my goal was to have rapid, accurate, cheap, affordable testing. As you know, most of us in senior living do not have a revenue stream to cover the cost of testing. And so finding tests that are, again, accurate, that can come back in a very short amount of time, and that we can afford to do on a very regular basis is key. So I was explaining this to my board, and one of my board members is a an alum at MIT. And he called me after that discussion and said, you know, there's some people at the Broad Institute, which is a, a well-known school within MIT, who are doing some wonderful research, and I want to introduce you to them. They are doing what's known as the gene splicing or CRISPR technology. And so I, I spoke with a gentleman by the name of Fung Zhang, and Fung Zhang is one of just very few people who are credited with finding this CRISPR technique for gene splicing and editing. And uh, he referred me to a company called Sherlock Bioscience, of which he is one of the founders. Sherlock Bioscience, apparently, well, let me take a step back. MIT does not commercialize products that are developed there. And so a group of people created Sherlock Bioscience to be able to commercialize CRISPR technology. And once COVID was on the scene, 
Fung Zhang wrote a paper which was published, I believe, in, in May, early May, late April, which essentially provided an open source access to how to do a cheap rapid test using CRISPR technology. Now, why is that important? Because the test that he was recommending utilized reagents that were readily accessible in our supply chain. And some of the PCR tests had trouble accessing the reagents they need to complete the test, which is why it was hard for our country to ramp up or scale up. The second thing he did is he showed that using the CRISPR technology to do the diagnostics would require a couple of, would require fewer steps. In PCR testing, you have to heat and cool the samples to get the RNA to multiply sufficiently to be able to detect the virus. What Fung Zhang did is suggested that people could do it utilizing a sous vide and a sous vide cooker, which is essentially a hot water bath with a single time of heating and cooling, which dramatically reduced the amount of time it took to process the test. So he, he published that paper and the folks at Sherlock began to scale that test. Now, initially, they got their EUA from the FDA on May 6th, but the EUA they got was for that test to be done utilizing the CRISPR technique, but in a highly complex lab, so not something that could be done at home. Again, CRISPR tests more easily accessible, chances to get it back are, are uh, sooner, are quicker, and the hope was that the cost would go down. So now I'm going to get to Gesina. So, and ultimately, what Sherlock wants to do is to develop an at-home test that will look like a cartridge similar to the ones you use for pregnancy, to at-home pregnancy tests. And we're actually helping them organize a group of industry folks, both decision makers and test people who do the tests and people who do infection prevention on site to make sure that as they develop this cartridge-based at-home test that it's done in such a way that it's easy for people to use. So we're starting that research next week with them, and we're excited to do that. Zafina just bought a molecular lab, and it is dedicated only to COVID-19 testing. So we started working with Zafina about a month to six weeks ago, uh, first utilizing their PCR test, but the streamlining the documentation and reporting processes. Zafina is not only a lab company, but they are an analytics company. And they have they utilize software not only to do predictive analytics on who should get tests and who's more susceptible to the disease, but also they're really, really good at reducing the steps involved in documentation and reporting, which in turn for us enables us to do it with fewer staff members on site. So we started working with them on that. We've since helped them to validate a cheek swab testing. You know, the worst part about these tests, most people claim, is that you have to have a nasal swab which tickles your brain. Not very comfortable, not something that anyone looks forward to. The Decina test that we are validating with them is a cheek swab that will be able to be done without people monitoring the test, we hope, and we'll make it simpler and require fewer people again to do the test. That 
cheek swab will be utilized with the CRISPR-based test, which will further reduce the cost and the time frame. So we're really excited about that. We finished our sampling for a validation study a couple of weeks ago because our number of people who had had COVID within the 30-day time frame for the study had, had diminished. We've worked with a number of other great industry participants who are willing to work on the, the validation study with us. And we hope by the end of this week to have that done so that shortly all of us can be using a cheek swab and the CRISPR-based test, which is seems to be more accurate and will be at about 50% of the cost of at least our PCR test. Well, that's that was a lot of information, and I have a couple other questions about <laughs> testing. Sorry. Well, no, 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 Lynn. This is this is great. I love to talk about this stuff. I just have a long list of questions, so I want to try to get to all of them because you're always a great source of information. I know that you're also working with a company called Nanomix on antibody testing. Uh-huh. Tell us about that and why you chose to also go the antibody testing route as well. Okay, so there's essentially viral testing and antibody testing. And within the viral testing realm, there are three different tests. There's an antigen test, which you've heard of, that's Quidel or the new BD test. There is the traditional testing, and then there's the CRISPR test. And uh, so antibody testing tests for whether you've had the disease in the past. It is not a viral test, so it doesn't tell you whether you have active COVID at the time of the test or not. And if you want to keep building safe, you can certainly do an antibody test, which will in turn tell you how many people have sufficient antibodies so that they essentially won't expose anyone. They are immune from COVID-19, and that's a good thing, but it doesn't tell you which of those people of the other people who are not antibody positive have active COVID at the time and might transmit it to someone in your community. And that's what viral testing is needed. So as a company that's always wanted to help move the needle in terms of new technology and new ideas, we agreed to be part of a couple of different studies. One of them is with a company called Nanomix, which is doing a simple blood test for antibodies. And so we've been working with them on that. There are many antibody tests out there. Not all of them are EUA approved, but this was something we started some time ago in the hope that uh, we would be able to access antibody tests rapidly and at a relatively inexpensive price. So we're working on both of those things. I think the antibody tests are really good, but frankly, the viral testing, the rapid viral testing that we can do as often as every day, if the price is right and it's accurate enough and you don't have to swab someone's brain, is where we're heading. That's what you need to make sure your community is safe. Yeah. You know, I, I talk with you, Lynn, and I learn so much about testing. And then I talk with other senior living providers who tell me that, you know, they're not testing all their residents. They're not testing all their staff seems like in those cases, there's just a differing opinion. But what is your opinion of providers that aren't doing all of this? I mean, do you just think this is something that's necessary? Or do you think that with some screening, you don't have to necessarily test everyone? Well, you know, everybody, every leader makes different choices. And they have, I'm sure, a good rationale for their choices. So I can only speak for my choices. I can tell you that I made the choice for Juniper 
to test rapidly and as often as possible. And I believe that that strategy is part of a series of steps which you must do to protect your residents, your staff, and frankly, your community. So that was the decision I made. My decision is one that's based in an operating strategy we have at Juniper, which is, you know, to have as much data as possible to make the best decisions possible. Testing gave us the kind of data we felt we needed to make the best battle plan. Now, frankly, Juniper's in an advantageous position. We're a small company, Tim. We have the ability, because we're small, to do things when other companies that are much larger would have a harder problem accessing testing. And so we were able to work on a partnership with Magnolia early on, which provided us the number of tests that we needed. And that was very, very helpful. As testing has become more prevalent in the U.S., I think there are more tests that are available now and more people are using them. And uh, the biggest hurdle right now, frankly, is not only access to quick turnaround tests, but frankly, the cost of testing. Most of us in senior housing don't have a funding source for the testing of our associates. Most residents are covered by Medicare, but staff typically are not. Those that have private insurance can can get that, and we do build private insurance. But for the amount of testing that we're doing, we're spending about a hundred grand a week on testing, and that will come down as we switch to the cheap type test and uh, work more with the SENA, but it's a very expensive thing to do, and we've been in a, in a very lucky position not only to be able to access testing, but to have the cash available with from our operations to fund that, and it was a decision we made to do that. So I do believe it's the right thing for everyone to do, but different people have different opinions about that and, frankly, have different access to resources, and I think that's a big part of it. I think if the federal governments and state governments would provide funding for testing for everyone, I think it would be a wonderful, it would be advantageous not only to us as communities, but to society. You know, older adults with chronic illness are the ones most susceptible not only to getting COVID, but to being hospitalized with COVID. And hospital beds, particularly in hotspots, are hard to find. And the cost to all of us as a society, COVID care in the hospital is very high. So to the degree you can keep our communities free from massive outbreaks, you protect not only us and our residents and our businesses, but also society as a whole. Yeah. Well, Lynn, I have to say, you certainly make a good case <laughs> for why you should be doing this <laughs> in your communities. You always convince me that this is this is a good thing to do. I wanted to get your sense of where exactly you think we are in the pandemic. Obviously, that can be very hard to guess. I mean, no one truly knows when this is going to end. It does not seem like, though, we are any, you know, we're, we're certainly not close to a resolution, it seems. So, yeah, I guess, where are we in the pandemic fight? And also, just how generally do you think the industry can prepare for the long haul, operationally, financially, clinically? What What's the way forward? Well, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> and I wish I was as optimistic as some of the news reports you hear, although today it's 
information says that some people are concerned that the, the vaccine is being politicized. I'm not going to go there today, but I do not believe that this will be over this quarter. I do not believe it will be over before the end of the year, although I do expect that we'll see some kind of vaccine that will get its approval, whether it'll be scaled, whether people will believe it's safe, whether the right people will be prioritized for its distribution, I can't say. But I see at least at least another six months, and it could be considerably more. What do we do operationally? What do we do financially? I think there are a number of things we do, and how do we deal with COVID? I think we all have learned that the people we serve need uh, some help and need healthcare services. And while many of us did not need to think about infection control in the way that the skilled sector of our industry has always done, or certainly hospitals have, we've learned that we have to be uh, more proactive. We have to utilize PPE in different ways than we ever did. And we have a harder time to make sure that our buildings remain home-like rather than institutional in light of all of these new practices. So operationally, infection uh, prevention, cleaning, disinfecting, how you organize activities, how you deliver food, and what you deliver food, all of those things have changed markedly. And will begin to change back. It's beginning to change back in a number of our communities that are no longer in hotspots. But it's it's still different. And so you're going to see people spending more money on PPE, although the rush in late March and April and early May was amazing. It was very difficult to get anything, and the prices that you paid were much higher. That's beginning to subside. We'll see if it continues. As time goes on, testing, as I mentioned before, is expensive. So you have some ongoing financial costs. But frankly, I believe if we can be successful, and it's a big if, to essentially keep the disease outside of our community via testing and good infection prevention, that we will be a safe, secure, and life-affirming place for people who need extra care and assistance to live throughout pandemic. So I think, again, depending on how we shape our story and how we are able to tell about our successes, business can can improve and we can operate through that. Now, staffing has been a huge issue during the pandemic. And as people, as communities uh, become part of a hotspot and have outbreaks, staffing is very difficult. Staff, just like anyone, is afraid. Some of them get sick and they go home. Some of them were exposed. And so overnight, your staffing numbers can reduce and you've got to be ready. So you've got to be prepared to have additional people come in. And you've got to be able to repurpose folks in your community. So dining servers in your dining room might become housekeepers. Obviously, they're not going to replace healthcare professionals, but we've been using universal worker strategies and training programs to fill in where we need to. We've also done something really fun at the height of, of the pandemic for us in, in April and early May. It just, we used our sales team to start recruiting staff. And you know what? 
they're just as good in that as they are bringing new people in the door. So a couple of those strategies really helped on the operating front. On the financial front, frankly, I think that the key is going to be keeping our building safe, convincing people that they're safe, improving our occupancy, which we're starting to see, messaging properly. And the messaging, I don't know if you saw the recent Promature report, which I think is being published today, so I'll have to be careful about that. But they did some work to show what people wanted to Mm -hmm. move in senior living. And what they want is really interesting. They want it to be clean, and they want to see that it's clean. So being able to show your cleaning and disinfecting protocols is really important. They want to see that you're testing, and they would thirdly like primary care on site. They want to make sure that their loved one has access to regular medical care. So if you can do all of those things, I think you can increase occupancy, which then improves your financial picture. But ultimately, some of these costs are going to have to be offset. And just as they're being offset for hospitals and other places, the costs have to be offset for us too. And the government needs to help in that process. We are essential healthcare providers, but because we are largely private pay, people forget that we are part of that system. And I believe that needs to change. I think that all of our national associations are doing a great job working on our behalf to make that happen. I hope they're almost there getting us an allocation of money from the CARES Act. So we'll see where that goes. I'm cautiously optimistic about it. One other thing that I'm concerned about, and that is liability. And I think the number of lawsuits that will result from this are many. And again, I know the Act, Stimulus Act before the uh, House and, and Senate is having many discussions about the extent of liability protection, but I do believe that it's appropriate and necessary for people that have gone the extra mile and done their best. You know, this is this is a pandemic. There's no reason to believe that we should have been able to snap our fingers and uh, kept everyone safe from harm, although I will say all of us all of us, myself included, and especially, were incredibly dismayed because we didn't understand enough about this disease early on to keep it entirely at bay from our industry. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground today. I don't want to keep you too long. I want to follow up on one thing, though, that you said a moment ago because it did, did I hear you right that you said that you're using your salespeople in some cases to actually recruit staff? How does that work? Yeah, they're super salespeople. Otherwise, you wouldn't be salespeople. How does that work? We actually created a workforce. What we realized is that our communities who were in the middle of dealing day-to-day with COVID really didn't have time to recruit, and they needed staff. So we created this small workforce, task force, I guess it was, and actually began active recruiting. And so they were on the phones. We did you know, the usual digital outreach, and they were incredibly successful in filling open positions at our communities. So hire salespeople to do recruiting. (laughs) Well, you heard it here. (laughs) Well, great. Lynn, I could ask you so many more questions, but unfortunately, we are out of time today. But thank you so much for coming on Transform and for talking with us. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot, and I'm sure that our listeners did too. 
Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate the opportunity. That concludes this episode of Transform. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Submissions are currently open. The early bird deadline is September 30, and the final entry deadline is October 31. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.